Lord, we thank you tonight that indeed you reign over all things. There's no second guessing that. You are, you're the almighty God. You're the one who created heaven and earth. And, and Lord, in that reality, we know that you also oversee all things. You didn't create it just to let it go and, and in whatever direction it might go, but rather, Lord, in your sovereignty, you still are marking out the steps of history. Though we feel as though things may feel out of control, though things may not appear as we wish they would, Lord, we know that in the end, according to your word, your sovereignty makes all the difference and you will set all things right. We count on that truth tonight. Lord, we also thank you that your sovereignty includes the, the watchful care of those who are wounded and those who are heartbroken, those who are, are uh, misplaced and, and without home. Lord, I think tonight of the many, many people who have been displaced by war, by famine, by by extreme weather, hurricanes, etc. We thank you, Lord, that even they are not outside of your sight. With that said, Lord, we would intercede on their behalf and ask that you would meet their needs. And if you would choose to use us in uh, helping to meet those needs, Lord, I pray that you'd lay it on our hearts that we, and that we would respond in obedience. We thank you, Jesus, for the fact that you've also created us and equipped us to be the, your agents, your, your people carrying out your good pleasure here on this planet. And our desire, Lord, is to do just that. I also, Lord, am mindful of the fact that we have uh, a sister church um, in California that is grieving greatly the loss of, of uh, loved ones there in this terrible dive boat accident. And Lord, we lift them up to you. We thank you that even tonight as we talk about grief, um, what we have to hold on to is the history of your provision. What we have to hold on to is the promise of your provision. We pray, Lord, that tonight you would gird them up, even as, as uh, you would encourage us as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, thanks, you guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, we're in Psalm 77 tonight. Um, and it's there that um, we are going to uh, hear of perhaps comfort, encouragement, reassurance in, in the face of difficulty, trial, and tribulation. And, um, and uh, as we look at that, I'd like for us to uh, be 
be thinking of our own circumstances, but perhaps the, the, those of others as well. And uh, I love the way we have the freedom to just spread out and sprawl all over this auditorium. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know, we make the little effort to kind of create a smaller environment up here front in front, basically so that we can connect with one another and you're invited to do that. I, uh, no, no pressure, however, nobody's, nobody's put on, on the spot here tonight. Um, we're going to look at God's promises, his power and provision and most specifically, a spiritual remedy for, of all things, depression. Um, depression is a very real thing. And um, as I'll uncover here in a little bit, statistically, we are in the midst of uh, a season, both within our, our culture as, as uh, people of the United States, but also worldwide a season of great, great despair in which depression is at all-time highs. Um, before we do that, I want to dig in just a little bit here in the, uh, in the, the preamble of the, uh, the psalm here. Uh, this psalm is written for the choir director. I love that, personally. According to Jedithan, now who in the world is Jedithan? Have you even heard that name before in the scripture? A few of us have, but he's a, kind of an obscure char uh, character. Uh, but he was a sidekick of Asaph. Now, we've talked about Asaph plenty of times before, right? Um, I'd like to just bring forward the context uh, in 1 Chronicles 16, um, and, and 15, uh, or th I'm, the text is from Second Chronicle, or excuse me, First Chronicles 16. The context is at the end of chapter 15, David is with the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands in bringing up the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom. And it says that they brought that ark up with joy. Now, just a little backstory: um, the ark was stolen um, by the uh, by the Philistines, right? And they they discovered that as long as the ark of the Lord was present in their camp, things were not going well, not going well at all. And so they uh, they decided, hey, let's send it back to Israel. So they put it they they put it on an ox cart, and uh, David sent men out to greet the ox cart. And, and in the process, they, uh, one of David's servants uh, tried to steady the ark in the course of, of, of the travel back to Jerusalem. And uh, the cart got stuck in a rut, and the ark almost fell off the cart. And so the servant of David uh, put his hand up to, to steady the ark, and the Lord struck him dead right on the spot. And, uh, of course, that was, 
that was a heart stopper, not only for that man, but for everybody else as well. And, and uh, so David said, hold your horses. We are not going any further with this. And he sent it to the house of Obed-Edom. And um, in the process of, of that experience, that sent David back to studying. How do you transport the ark? Imagine the people of Israel had forgotten that. Of course, this was generations after the Ark of the Covenant came into the land of Israel. And, and, so, um, and so after studying, David learned precisely how the Ark was to be carried on long poles with consecrated men doing the carrying. And so they went back to get it at uh, the house of Obed-Edom after that household had experienced overwhelming blessing by the presence of the Lord via the, the Ark of the Covenant. So they're on their way back, on their procession back into Jerusalem. And chapter 16 of First Chronicles, uh, verse 1 reads, And they brought the Ark of God and placed it inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. In verse 37, we read, So he left Asaph and his relatives uh, there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark continually as every day's work required. Now, we know that Asaph was among the, the Levitical singers, the, a singer who was uh, tasked for, uh, with bringing continual worship before the Lord. Verse 41, with them were Heman and Jeduthun, and the rest who were chosen and were, who were designated by name to give thanks to the Lord because his loving kindness is everlasting. And verse 42, and with them were Heman and Jeduthun with trumpets and cymbals for those who should sound aloud and with instruments for, for the songs of God and the sons of Jeduthun for the gate. So there we see the, the identity of Jeduthun. He was one of those, uh, it, he was both a singer and an instrumentalist, and he was set apart to minister to the Lord in worship, in song. Um, now, we also see him present at the dedication of Solomon's temple. We know that Solomon is David's son, and he is king after David dies. And we know as well that we read here that uh, the Ark of the Covenant was placed into a tent when David brought it into the city. David desired to build a house for the Lord. But, um, but the Lord said, no, you're not the man to do that. You've got too much blood on your hands. But your son will do that. So Solomon built a temple, and it was a glorious temple. Um, uh, I, I think it can be said that it was one of the architectural wonders of the world at that time. And um, so at the dedication of that temple in Cycles chapter 5, we read this. When the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests were present and sanctified themselves without regard to divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, and their sons and kinsmen clothed in fine linen. So there again, we see Jeduthun as one of the Levitical singers. 
So that's who he is. Now, we also read here in the introduction that this is a psalm of Asaph. And as we've said before, it may very well have been penned by Asaph himself. Um, I think in this context, perhaps it was indeed by him. It could have also been uh, penned by one of his descendants. Um, now, um, in verse 15 of Psalm 77, we see uh, that it is, uh, he mentions the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Just a side note, Jacob and Joseph uh, were uh, the heads of tr tribes of Ju Judah or tribes of Israel. And they, um, they were positioned in the Northern kingdom as opposed to the Southern kingdom. Um, um, that's just a, a curious side note. Now the title of the Psalm at least in the New American Standard, is comfort in trouble by recalling God's mighty deeds. Um, and it's important to note that the psalm was penned by those who were set apart to lead worship. The purpose of the psalm is to be used in corporate worship. And its contents deals with distress, a troubled spirit, and of all things, I think we can say depression. That's a modern terminology of what we will see described here in this psalm. Um, now, that's the background of the psalm. Why is it important today? Well, I'd like to just uncover just a few clinical facts for us uh, in our day and time. Depression affects people from every walk of life, um, no matter what their background. It can affect people of all ages, whether young or old, or anything in between. Unfortunately, there's still a stigma as well around issues of, uh, related to mental health. And some people view disorders, and, as, such as depression, as a quote-unquote weakness. But similar to the way anyone can develop certain physical health issues, mental health issues aren't always preventable. There's no single cause of depression, according to research. It can be the result of brain chemistry, um, uh, the chemistry in your, in your head not working the way it was supposed to or was the way it was designed. Hormones play a part, genetics, play a part, um, as well as physical health plays a part, and your life experiences play a part in, in depression. Prevalence in adults with major depressive episodes is highest among individuals between 18 and 25. That's curious, isn't it? Those are the, those are the years of young adulthood when there is a lot of transition happening. A lot of, uh, uh, I should say, formation of, of personal identity and trajectory in life. 11.3% um, of adults who report two or more uh, races in their background, in other words, of, of mixed, uh, mixed heritage, uh, they, they report, 11.3% uh, uh, of those adults uh, report experiencing major depressive episodes in the past year. 
And this is research done in about uh, 2017. 8.7% of women have depression. 5.3% of men have depression. And as of 2017, 300 million people around the world have depression, according to the World Health Organization. 300 million people. According to data from 2017 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, 17.3 million adults in the United States, equaling about 7.1 of all adults in the country, have experienced a major depressive episode in the past year. 11 million U.S. adults experienced an episode that resulted in severe impairment in the past year. 11 million people. Nearly 50% of all people diagnosed with depression are also diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. Now, I hope all these statistics are, are meaningful to you because they, they are certainly meaningful to the people who experience depression. And I would dare say with these, with these statistics, there's a good chance that there's somebody or some several people within this small gathering here this evening who have dealt with or are dealing with depression. Um, it's estimated that 15% of the adult population will experience depression at some point in their lifetime. Only one in five people receive treatment consistent with current practice guidelines. 6% of people with depression are treated with medication only. In other words, medication is one of the ways of treating uh, uh, depression, but only 6% of those suffering with depression are, are treated with medication only. 35% of adults with depression receive no treatment at all. Now, depression is a reality both inside and outside the church. It's important for us to respond to this reality with all of the resources that God has provided. Those resources are physical. In other words, medication makes a difference. They are psychological. In other words, um, skilled counseling can make a difference. And they are spiritual. In other words, God can bring the resources into our lives that can minister to us. All of those resources are legitimate because they're part of God's creation. Um, he's provided every single one of them. And they are there to meet the needs of his people and all of his creation. Humanity is created in the image of God. We know God to be a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know that God also created in us a trinity. That trinity is the, indeed the fact that we have a body. We have a soul. And a mind, uh, the soul and the mind, the, the soul speaks of the will and the mind together. And we have a spirit. So we are body, soul, and spirit, trinity, made in the image of God. The question we have to ask is what, what are the spiritual tools that God has provided for us to address this issue 
this very real issue of depression um, within our human experience. Now, understanding that those tools very often work in partnership with the tools that we bring to the physical and psychological pieces of who we are. Now, Psalm 77 provides some insights and some answers for spiritual intervention. Now, again, it, I, wanna, I want to underscore the fact that this psalm was, was written by those who were set apart to lead worship. The purpose of the psalm is corporate worship. I point that out because it's important for us to understand that biblical worship includes every single dimension of the human experience. Some of us tend to think that worship is set apart for a singular moment or slivers of our life. But worship is designed, biblical worship is meant to impact every single area of our life. Not only impact it, but be invited into every area of our life. It's not limited to one type of experience or emotion. Now, 1 Corinthians, uh, the, well, I, three, three passages. Uh, the Apostle Paul underscores this for us in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 31. The context here is Paul talking about not offending others uh, uh, by eating meat offered to idols. He says an idol is nothing. But if, but if it bothers somebody who's, who's close to you, choose not to eat because, because um, you have that liberty to do that. Now, he, he imparts this wisdom in the midst of that discussion. He says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Again, that fits with the biblical understanding of worship. Everything we do is meant to be done to the glory of God. First Thessalonians chapter 5, he writes these final instructions to the, Thess the Thessalonians. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterance, but examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. And in Romans chapter 12, I, I, this is uh, a passage that I love to quote often. In response to the grace of God that he unfolds in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul writes these words in verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. And, by the way, he says, that is your spiritual service of worship. The word spiritual there is indeed translated from a word that includes the idea that's the logical thing to do. That's, that's the only thing that makes sense. To present your bodies a living sacrifice what do, you, what do you do when you offer a sacrifice? You give it over completely, right? And that's what, that's what the apostle uh, exhorts us to do. Now, we're not in the New Testament. We're in Psalm 77, right? 
right, Brad, so get on with it, right? You're wondering what's going on here. Well, Psalm 77, let's, let's, um, let's begin. We see here a desperate cry from the depth of depression and the pathway out of it. Verse one, my voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, in the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. And then he adds the word Selah. Verse one, my voice rises. The word, the, the word there for voice rises is uh, to call out aloud, to make a sound with your voice. Um, the psalmist here is praying out loud. How many of you pray out loud? Okay, good number of you. It's a great discipline to, to be involved in. Um, uh, we see that phrase repeated. It's stated twice. My voice rises to God two times. That's for emphasis. And it's his voice that is rising. It's not just his thoughts and his intentions. There's something that happens when we hear ourselves vocalize our prayer to the Lord. It has a way of, of uh, codifying or organizing our thoughts and allows us to focus with greater, um, greater precision says that his voice rises to God. The word God here is Elohim. It's, it's the uh, plural. And it speaks, for us, we, we realize that speaks of the Trinity, right? And it indeed speaks of the supreme God. Now, he is crying out to God. And his expectation is that God is listening, right? I will cry aloud. Again, that second uh, verse there, I will cry aloud, uh, that word there means to shriek. <laughs> to shriek, or rather proclaim um, as to an assembly, to call together. Now, it's interesting here that in, this, in that context, he is highlighting the fact that he is calling others together. The praying out loud, out loud is not only for himself, but it's for others as well. And then his assurance, and he will hear me. There's clear confidence and a confident expectation here. Uh, Psalm 86, verse 6 reads, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer, and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. It's curious to me that the psalmist follows this uh, assurance that you will hear me, you will even answer me. He follows that with the words, there is no other God like you. What other gods are there? But idols, right? And, and what are idols? The, 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 the prophets uh, were very clear in pointing out they're nothing but stone. They're nothing but wood. 
they have no voice of their own. So our God is unlike any other, and I should say so-called God, because the others are really not gods at all, are they? they? They are just pieces of art. And he calls out in the day of trouble. Trouble tends to redirect us to God. In that sense, trouble can be considered, dare I say it, good. A friend, yeah. One who embraced, one to be embraced rather than avoided. Certainly not sought out. We're not seeking trouble, right? But when it comes, we accept it as a part of our journey with God. He says, I sought the Lord. Um, the, the word sought there uh, means to tread or to frequently, frequent. Um, means to follow after, if you will. And in, in the sense of I'm following after in pursuit of something. To seek or to ask. And it's noted in the definition of the root of this word, especially or specifically to worship. You know, some of us um, miss the opportunity to really seek God in the midst of worship. We think we have to have it all put together. We have to, we have to um, be be completely assured of, of, of God's presence and, and his, his provision for us if we're going to enter into worship wholeheartedly. You know that seeking God is part of worship as well? And what happens when you seek? The reality is you, you, you're seeking because you don't really know. You, you're not totally sure of this. And in the midst of worship, there is a seeking that's going on. And the, the beauty of that is worship is also reciprocal. God reveals himself in the midst of worship. Now, the, the psalmist here also says, my soul refused to be comforted. Um, Oh, excuse me. Before that, he says, my hand was stretched out. Again, I think that's tied to the idea of seeking God. Uh, it's reaching, receiving. That's the posture. And then he says, my soul refused to be comforted. That one makes me scratch my head. Because the word refuse uh, initially sounds like I'm stiff-arming God. I'm not going to allow you to comfort me. But that's really not, really not what it means. Um, it speaks of a deep, abiding grief that it, it's not a willful refusal. It's just a, uh, a deep, abiding grief that will not be easily moved. Genesis 37, we have this same, this same thought in the, uh, the description of, uh, 
Israel's response to hearing that his son was killed, or so he thought. Genesis 37, then he examined it, that is, the coat of many colors that Joseph had. He examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Deep abiding grief is usually associated with profound loss. And grief is a very, very important emotion in our lives that must be expressed. If it's squashed, if it's ignored, if it's not allowed to be expressed, it will work its way out sideways in our lives because it will not, it will not be ignored without consequence. Uh, when I say uh, it will work its way out sideways, I'm sure you have encountered somebody who Respond, who responds to a situation in an uncharacteristic way that would cause you to wonder why in the world would you respond that way? Maybe it's tears, maybe it's anger, just an explosion over, over spilled milk. <laughs> the reality is, is what's going on many times in those situations is somebody it has squashed a grief in their life to the point that it is working itself out in a way that is not understood by others. Um, they don't even understand it themselves because they've ignored to take notice of it. Um, unexpressed grief can indeed lead to depression. For many, depression comes from loss, and it's described as introverted anger. Have you ever heard that idea? That that depression is, is anger turned inward. Um, death, illness, divorce, unemployment, moving to another city, abuses of all sorts, withdrawal of love. All of these losses and many others can trigger depression. And, and when it comes, a lot of people find themselves retreating or withdrawing into themselves. And they refuse to be around other people. They stop eating sometimes. They want to sleep a lot. All they want to do is curl up in a ball and sleep the day away. They don't want to interact at all. Some become physically ill. And in extreme cases, some people actually have an honest desire to simply die. Verse 3, when I remember God, then am I, I am disturbed. That word disturbed means to moan, make a loud noise. Why would the psalmist be disturbed? 
when he remembers God. In the midst of difficulties, many of us begin honestly to doubt God. We doubt his presence. We doubt his goodness, his promises. Some of us even doubt his existence. I think in many respects, that is the that is the spiritual crisis that happens for a lot of young adults. Um, but it's not limited to young adults. Many people who go through a crisis even late in life find themselves doubting God. Now, <laughs> I... I um, We are prone to see circumstances only from the point of view, um, only from our singular point of view, and, and we begin to question what we say or have said we believe. Um, remember, Lot's, or not, Job's wife. Remember Job's wife? What did, what did she say to, to Job? In re yeah, why don't you just curse God and die? Give up. And I can only say that that perspective might have indeed come from the midst of her own doubt about God. Sometimes depression has spiritual roots as well. Moral failure, all sorts of sin creates guilt, resulting in spiritual dryness and feelings, feelings that like we've been abandoned by God. And people end up feeling distant from the Lord as well. They think, he must hate me. He could never forgive me. Have you heard that from anybody before? I certainly have. And the reality is, what if we had any intimacy with God before, it's gone in those moments. And it's replaced very often with self-hatred. I could never be loved by God again. And you know what? Satan is right there, ready to move in and capitalize on that way of thinking, that situation. He says, when I sigh, the word sigh means to ponder. In other words, to converse with oneself. You ever talk to yourself? Yeah, I, I know that uh, some of us talk to ourselves more often than others, um, but it's actually a good thing. It's, it's a biblical idea. That's what that word means. He says, my spirit grows faint. And that word faint, grows faint, means to shroud or to hide. And it speaks of being overwhelmed overwhelmed by a circumstance. Um, when we ponder our difficulty and question God's character and his existence, we're apt to be overwhelmed by our circumstances. And we tend to be swept into this, uh, into this vortex of depression. And it feels like we can't get free of that whirlpool. 
the end of verse 3, he says, Selah. And we know that that word means to pause. And at this moment, I think he's thinking it's time to pause and reflect on these truths. Then in verse 4, he goes on, you've held my eyelids open. I'm so troubled I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. You've held my eyelids open. What? How many of you have experienced insomnia? You know that that is, that is one, one symptom of chronic depression, insomnia. I think that's what the psalmist is expressing here. He's, he's wishing, he's wanting to sleep, trying to sleep, but he just can't. He's so troubled that he can't speak. You note the difference between verse 1 and verse 4 here. At the, in verse 1, he's saying, I'm raising my voice. And now suddenly he's unable to speak. The emotional swing within grief, the grief experience, is incredible. It, it can go from one extreme to the other in moments. He's troubled. This trouble, this word trouble is, is curious because it, um, uh, it means to beat regularly like you're um, like you're whipping up some eggs it's it's this repeated motion of agitation and it speaks of a persistent beating I'm troubled and I think the persistent onslaught of difficulty in our lives is what often leads us to a sense of being overwhelmed. You see, it's one thing to encounter a singular trouble. It's another thing to be hit again and again and again and again and feel like this, this repetitive beating is just not going to stop. And, it, it, and we can get to the point where it simply overwhelms us. Then in verse 5, we see a shift of tone. When I've considered the days of old, the years long ago, the word consider there is interesting as well. It means to weave or to fabricate. In other words, it's the idea I have weaved my memory of the events of the past I've brought them all together and I've weaved them together into a cohesive thought that helps me understand them. Verse 6, I will remember my song in the night. What song is that? When do we hear songs in the night? Probably heard them from your mother long ago when she was trying to get you to sleep. Perhaps it's a lullaby. I think my first reading of this was, was um, oh, that's the, a, a song in the middle of the night that, that uh, speaks of my distress. But I think on second thought, maybe it's a lullaby meant to comfort, meant to reassure, because that is the context of the shift in tone. 
Psalm 42, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to God of my life. Then he says, I will meditate. It's the same root as the word sigh that we, we uh, saw earlier. To ponder, to, to muse or to converse with yourself. And then he says, my spirit ponders. And that word ponder, uh, we, I, again, we, they're, they're relative words, but a little different meaning. It means to search out. Um, and then we have to ask, well, then what are we searching for? I think the psalmist is searching for peace. He's searching for resolution in the midst of this distress. And he's, he's wants resolution to the disconnect between his faith and his circumstance. Verses 7 through 9, there's six questions that demand an answer. And yet, they each feel unanswerable in some respects in the midst of depression. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Notice there's four forevers right in a row. God has forgotten, has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Each question has the opposite presumption. Think about it. The answer is this, verse 7, God will not reject forever. His forgiveness restores relationship. Amen? God will express his favor again because his children are his chosen ones. Verse 8, God's loving kindness has not and will not end. His love is a covenant love and it's it's linked to his promise. God's promises will not end. His promises are not, are, are, are not, excuse me, that's not right. My notes are wrong. God's promises will not end. His promises are his word of truth and his honor. His promises are inextricable from his character. Verse 9, God's grace is not able to be forgotten. His grace is part, again, of his character. God's mercy and compassion cannot be overshadowed by anger. His love is not conditional. Again, the word forever appears three times. And in the midst of Grief or depression, feelings feel very often like they're final, like they're forever. They're never going to change. They're permanent. And the word forever is a, is a, um, is a heads up to, to identifying catastrophic thinking that often accompanies loss and grief and depression. And catastrophic thinking is disconnected from reality. Verses 10 through 15. Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. 
I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have, you have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Then I said, it is my grief, verse 10. It's the aha moment. I know what's wrong. My feelings are doing the talking right now. That's his aha moment. And this word grief indeed means to be afflicted, to be weak, to be sick, to be in anguish. You know, when our feelings do the talking, they tend to distort the truth. They distort our trust, and they distort our trajectory. And we're not aware of our inability, of our own ability, or our inability to control those things. When our feelings are predominant, we have to stop and assess the past and the present. If we're dealing with distorted truth, we have to say, is what I'm feeling right now consistent with what I know to be true? If we're looking at distorted trust, we have to ask, is, the feeling, is what I'm feeling right now inviting me to trust what I know to be untrustworthy? If our trajectory or our, our movement toward our goal is disrupted and distorted, we have to ask, is what I am feeling right now taking me down a path toward health and wholeness or destruction? Then he says that the right hand of the Most High God has changed. It's my, it's my grief that the right hand of the Most High God has changed. That, that thought there is this, that what has, what has really changed is the mindset of the psalmist. God hasn't changed. His, he, he's waking up to the fact that I was thinking that God had changed, and no, God hasn't changed. The right hand is of the, high, of the Most High, the right hand is the hand of blessing and power. That God's blessing and power is to impart, is his to impart. Of the most high means of the supreme, the high, one higher than any other. It's similar to the word holy in that it's unlike any other, higher than any other. In other words, again, the psalmist wakes up to the fact that his grief has clouded his thinking. Verses 11 through 15, there's this intentional turnaround. Um, I shall, I will, in verse, uh, verses 11 and 12. These are statements of intent and commitment. They're not passive, I want to, or I wish I could, but they're proactive. And note the verbs. There's remember. Remember, jog your memory. Meditate. <laughs> Ponder, imagine, meditate, mutter about it. Muse 
Again, the same idea, converse with yourself. And note the object of these verbs, the deeds of the Lord, your wonder, wonders of old, all your work, your deeds, verse 12. This is the intentional practice of recalling and rehearsing God's action in the past toward and for his people and for us. It's an intentional practice of recollection. Dare I say that's part of what worship is? Intentional recollection of what God has done and who he is. 13 through 15 is the follow-through on the intent and the, commi- uh, and the commitment of 11 and 12. Your way, what you do and how you do it, O oh God, is holy, it's set apart, it's unlike any other. As a result, what God is great like our God? It's a rhetorical question, right? <laughs> there isn't any God like our God. Verse 14, you are the God, the, the El, the strength, the, the, the one who is mighty, almighty in fact, who works wonders. These are miracles, marvelous things, extraordinary, um, hard to understand. And you've made known your strength among the people. It's clear and evident to everyone. Verse 15, you have by your power, your strong arm, redeemed, you've bought back as as a kinsman you've bought back your very own people not simply the people of verse 14 not just everybody who the but your people the specific ones the sons of Jacob and Joseph again these are uh, the northern tribes but I think in specific here I think he is um, noting the fact that this speaks of those who were brought out of the promised land or brought into the promised land from Egypt. Um, we see that in the following verses, 16 through 20, where he speaks of the waters. Um, the waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The depths also trembled. The cr- clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth a sound, your arrows flashed here and there, the sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind, the lightnings lit up the world, the earth trembled and shook, your way was in the sea, your paths in the mighty waters and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You see, as we look at this, we see this allusion, yes, indeed, I think, to somewhat of the idea of creation, the wonders of the deep, etc. But I think more specifically in this context, he is speaking of the exodus, the redeeming of his people. Um, and he takes some poetic liberty. Um, he speaks of the, uh, the power of God over his creation. The waters, the depths, the clouds, the skies, the rain, the thunder, the lightning, and even the earthquake, that's in verse 18, where the earth shakes. He says, your way, your road, the the thing that you've trodden out speaks of the parting of the Red Sea. That's that pathway through the sea. And the root reference also includes 
a course or a life, a mode of action, um, your way, the way you do things, God, <laughs> your paths, your footprints, they all speak only, uh, not only of the history of how God acted in the past, but also in how God acts in the present in other words, your, your way in the sea, the paths in the mighty waters speak of the idea of God's pattern, his MO, his modus of operation. It's to bring salvation. It's to bring redemption out of chaos and hopeless situations. That's who he is. Your footprints may not be known. Per, perhaps they were covered by the sea. Perhaps they're mysterious. God's way of deliverance are not known to us until the time of deliverance, and sometimes not even then. Think about it. Isaiah writes, my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is the Lord speaking. Nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let's go back to verse 16. The water saw you, O God. The water saw you and they were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out waters. The skies gave forth a sound and the arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Sounds like a tornado, right? The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. That's an earthquake. The way was, your way was in the sea, your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. Wow. And then he ends with verse 20. It's curious to me because in some ways it feels like an anticlimax. And if it is, it's a calculated one. He does it on purpose. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You see the displays of God's power are, they're not the end in themselves. They are means to an end. God's overriding concern is his flock, his people. And the word, this flock is collective. It's, it's the concern for the whole. But the flock is made up of individual sheep, each needing personal attention to enable us to flourish into, into the the people that we're called to be so that we can yet even be a part of building up the, the collective, the flock, even further. Matthew 18, Jesus says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he leave the 99 on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he find the, finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is of the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should not perish. 
God will hear the cry of his child. Singular. He will hear the cry of his children, plural. Verse 1, my voice rises to God and he will hear me. That is the assurance we have in the midst of our day of trouble, verse 2. Of our dark night of despair, verse 3. That is the assurance we have when we question God's presence, his faithfulness, even, even his existence. And even when we're exhausted by that doubt, verses 7 through 9. God will hear. Not only will he hear, he will open our eyes and open our ears and provide insight into the origin of our feelings that seem to hold us captive. Verse 10, aha, that moment will come. Not only will he give us insight, he will lead us out of that captivity of depression. Verses 10 through 20. So in closing, what spiritual resources do we hear, see here for dealing with depression? What are the tools, spiritual tools that are available to us beyond, beyond the, the, the physical and the psychological, medication and, and, and therapy? <laughs> Number one, there's prayer. Number two, there's the memory of past joys, even in the darkness of night. Number three is there's the confession of who God is as the gracious covenant-keeping God. Number four, there's the return to God's sacred space, his sanctuary. Fifthly, there's the rec recollection of God's power, his right hand, his supernatural intervention in history and even in our lives. Number six, there's the assurance that what God has done before, he will do again. These truths hold us securely when the lights go out and our grief is overwhelming. Darkness will give way to light. Hopelessness and despair will give way to faith. Limited perspective will give way to truth. God's promises, his power and his provision, each one and collectively is the remedy, the spiritual remedy for depression. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you allow us to, to come to you in whatever condition we're in. You don't require us to have it all together. But Lord, even in the midst of our desperation, you invite us to come before you and to set our mind, our will, and our emotions, to set our spirits toward you that you might restore us to health. Thank you that you do not reject us, but rather, Lord, you receive us and give us that aha moment that helps us turn around. 
We love you, Lord. We love you for this and so much more. In Jesus' name, amen. I encourage you, if you are dealing with depression or know of somebody who is, um, invite them. Invite them to come before the Lord, even in his sovereignty, because he will not reject them. Amen. Trust your grace in every single trial.